Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagles Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at OCOcean.com. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, Auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So if you're podcast people, you probably know Chuck Bryant of Stuff You Should Know, who every Friday has been making people smarter about all sorts of things, condoms, bullfighting, gerrymandering. He's really doing the Lord's work over there. Well, Chuck has a new podcast. It's called Talking Points. And what he does is he sits down with people across the entertainment industry and he talks about their life and their favorite all-time movie and how it relates to everything, their career, their viewpoint on life. They're, they're all of it. They're all of it. They're all of it. They're everything because Chuck's a curious guy. Guess that he has, he's got Tony Shahoub on The Sting. He's got Tig Notar on Mask. He's got... Dak Shepard, famous dad Dak Shepard on Raising Arizona, John Hodgman on The Avengers, Tony winning Davi Diggs on Get Out, and he's got our own beloved, beloved, beloved Paul Shear, hey Paul, on Beverly Hills Cop. So Movie Crush is just an awesome new show, and if you're a movie nerd, you're definitely going to want to check it out. So go to iTunes right now or wherever you get your favorite shows every Monday and for every Friday, and you can get your own crush on Movie Crush. Hey guys, are you looking for a new podcast that combines your love of three things? comedy and music and getting smarter about the creative process because oh there's a new show that you're going to love it's called supergroup it actually has one of our past guest stars tawny newsome of yo is this racist she is the host along with alex kleiner and what they do on this show is they every week they invite a comedian and a musician to write and record an original song with them over the course of the week so what you do is you get to watch it progress it's sort of like song exploder but that's all about how a song came to be, like you're looking back at the past. This is you getting to watch creation in present. I mean, we're talking about like revisions, writing, rewording, mixing, changing things, learning how to make stuff better. I find that so interesting because, you know, here on Unspooled and being a film critic, I always get to talk about things as they're done. I want to know about how it was making it, all the choices. And it's also just of course, funny because it's got Tawny, it's got Alex, and it's got all the comedians that they bring in. I mean, we're talking about Paula Tompkins and Ted Leo and Open Mike Eagle, Janet Varney. It's got everybody who's talented and creative. So if you want to dive down into the head of what it's like to be creative and to work with a team, you got to check this out. So go to stitcherpremium.com slash supergroup and use promo code unspooled for a free month of Stitcher Premium. That's stitcherpremium.com slash supergroup and use promo code unspooled to just get your mind blown. 
everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And each week we are going down the AFI's top 100 films from the 2007 list. Well, first up, I want to thank IndieWire because they just put out a list of the top 50 podcast episodes of the year. And coming in at number 50 was our Ben-Hur episode. I think it was the lepers that really pushed us over the edge. But I have to say, I love the idea that Ben-Hur is 100. We were number 50. We're just sliding in right at the end, us on our chariots. So thank you for that, IndieWire. Uh, we've had some fascinating discussions on our forum this week, including a deep, deep religious dive into talking about the descriptions of Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost and his cherubic cheeks and what cherubic means and how that could possibly relate to the scar on Tom Berenger's cheek and how satanic is he. Uh, we also had listener Cameron H. talk about the importance of him trying to get into the headspace of really understanding what a character goes through, you know, relating it to Charlie Sheen and the kids in Platoon and Dale Die and what they went through to try to make this movie, saying that when he was really into The Lord of the Rings and he talks about how Tolkien uh, really liked to talk about how much it rained on all of the hobbits as they went through their march, that Cameron H. went out into the rain and stood there for half an hour trying to feel like what it was like to be in the rain and not escape from it, to not try to run for shelter, to just let yourself get wet and really feel the difference between a minute in the rain and 30 minutes in the rain, and that it really changed his headspace. And he gets it. He gets why Dale Dye put everybody through this. Oh, I also want to say, beloved Matt Gorley of I Was There Too sent us his platoon fan art that he did in pencil when he was a kid and loved platoon. And I need to tweet that. I want everybody to see this wonderful platoon art. Also, I'm wondering... If pencil sketches of art are going to be a thing, is this what we all did? Do people still do pencil sketches? Are people still bored like that? I hope so. I should do a pencil sketch. But anyways, that's enough talking. Let's get silent. Let's talk about the giant. Now, Amy, I have never seen a Buster Keaton film. You haven't? You're a comedy genius. No, not at all. Uh, And I know that I'm probably getting a collective sigh from our audience. I've seen Charlie Chaplin films. I've seen silent comedies before, but I, for whatever reason, uh, old Stoneface never made it into my repertoire. So I had not seen The General, which is regarded as one of the best silent films of all time. So I wrote down what I thought The General was about. So uh, <laughs> that's what I think it's about. I wrote this down before I watched it. It said, a farce about an ill-equipped war general that accidentally starts a war and has no idea how to fight it. And it's a veiled metaphor for Hitler. Wow, Hitler in 1926. Well, again, I'm not looking at when the movies are coming out. I'm just <laughs> going off the title. I understand now that Hitler would not be a part of this. You were correct that there was a military component to the film. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm wrong. I mean, I'm very wrong. Uh, you know, the Hitler thing. I have to get better at my years. Uh, but I'm guessing I'm not alone. And uh, I want to hear what you guys think about The General. What do you think The General is about? Hopefully, you did this before you watch it. If you did it after, you've cheated. And, uh, you know, Nobody likes a cheater. No one likes a cheater. All right, let's take a listen. I think The General is a war movie. That's a pretty safe bet. I mean, it's called The General. So Buster Keaton plays a traveling salesman who falls asleep on a train and ends up in the South. Uh, during the Civil War as it's wrapping up, and he gets caught up in a big battle. Buster Keaton gets involved in wacky shenanigans in World War One. Yo, the general is, like, about a guy who runs a furniture warehouse. The general is a film starring Buster Keaton, who portrays a young Confederate soldier, impersonates a general, 
and escapes to the north. To say that the general is obviously a prequel to the general's daughter. I mean, it's in the title, guys. Pretty good. I wasn't alone here. I was not alone in some of these ideas. Um, I mean, I would never have guessed that the general was a train. Uh, I would never have guessed that. When they went to the train, I was like, oh, I guess this is a train movie. And it is um, also a war movie, a civil war movie about the South. Uh, I mean, this is a movie where the South wins. Yeah, temporarily. Temporarily. This is a movie that starts at the beginning of the Civil War. It starts in 1861 with the first burst of enlistment uh, and ends in 1862, a year later when uh, everything could be fine if you're in the South. And we get a triumphant picture of Buster Keaton running through the frame holding a Confederate flag, which gave me chills. (laughs) Well, did you know that this actually was based on a book? called The Great Locomotive Chase, which was written in 1863 by William Pittenger. Keaton was just a huge fan of train history, and he read the book, and it was written from the Union Army's perspective, but he did not believe the audience would accept the Confederates as villains, and he changed the story's point of view. It is kind of weird, right, that in these early years of Hollywood films about the Civil War, they do always take the Confederate side. I mean, Birth of a Nation being the biggest example of this. Yeah, I don't know, because it's over. I mean— Part of, uh, I, I think, the, the good and bad of America is that we, we scrap the losers from history and we are, we always won. You know, you would think that you wouldn't even want to focus on, uh, on you know, on the, the South anymore. Like, yeah, it's bizarre to think that when I think about all of the big American films about the Civil War, I can't really think of that many at all that take place from the Union's point of view. <laughs> I mean, the most famous probably after Birth of a Nation being Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And, and this has a scene a lot like Gone with the Wind, where the war starts and suddenly you see all the southern men in the town running to enlist ASAP. I mean, that's how the film opens here. Yeah, that was actually so impressive. I think the thing that blew me away about this movie was the scope of it. Um, I was expecting, to a certain extent, a very basic kind of farcical comedy. And I think what I realized was uh, this is more like – Fast and the Furious meets Jackass in a way. It's like, well, I know Johnny Knoxville just did that movie where he did like, he works at the water park and did his own stunts. There is a similarity to that movie in this, in the sense that, you know, uh, Buster Keaton is doing these insane stunts, which I didn't quite even understand. I want to talk about that too. But the scope of this movie is huge. And you can feel that in watching it. Yeah, it took him six months to make this movie. It was massively expensive. I mean, the estimates I've heard of the cost of the general are anywhere between $500,000 to a million dollars in 1926 money. The big uh, kind of train sequence where the train falls into the water, the big climax of the film, that in today's money cost $2 million, which is just, I mean, just for one Great. I mean, it's a great little stunt, but it's a huge thing. They built a bridge and they crashed the train. That train actually lived there for quite some uh, period of time until they actually took it back for scrap metal in World War II. Yeah, that scene is incredible. They set a bridge on fire so that when the enemy rides their train over this bridge, perfectly right when it gets into the middle of the bridge, the whole thing just collapses. I mean, this is a film with... No special effects. This is a film where everything practical happens, where where Buster Keaton is taking cannons and loading them with gunfire and telling everybody that he measured out the gunfire in pellets to make sure he didn't die while shooting this movie, where actors actually did almost get hit by cannonballs, where everything is really happening. But maybe we should just even talk about what this movie is about. Let's do it. So this movie starts with our image of Buster Keaton as Johnny Gray, a good old boy from the South who loves two <laughs> things. He loves his engine 
his train, named the general, and he loves his woman, whose name is Annabelle Lee, and she's played by Marion Mack, who was a bathing beauty at the time. Okay. You know, there was a big silent movie company called Mack Senate. Oh, yeah. A lot of guys come out of him. Yeah, Mack yeah. Senate, big dude. I've shot at Mack Senate Studios here in L.A. Uh, it's a great spot to do things. It's so famous. Everybody comes out of there. Fatty Arbuckle was a big Mack Senate guy. Mabel Norman, two people should love. And uh, Mack Senate had this thing with bathing beauties. He was like, hey, hot chicks. Send me your picture. Come here. You can be these bathing beauties in my film. <laughs> Marion Mack was one of his bathing beauties. She was a kid who lived in Utah, sent Mack Sennett a picture of him herself. And he was like, come to L.A., kid. And you so got the she, goods. And she did. She's beautiful. She looks like Isla Fisher, don't you think? Oh, yeah. She does have some similarities there. And and little did she know that she'd be scooped up by Buster Keaton to go all the way to Cottage Grove, Oregon, uh, <laughs> where they shot this movie. Uh, you know, and, and And he actually wanted to get the general, the actual train, the general, uh, in the film. But uh, when they heard that the actual general would be used in a comedy, they did not want to let him no, use it. No, they wanted this to be a solemn-ass drama. <laughs> I mean, because in a way, the general is sort of a lone survivor type of film. Because this is made in 26, where, you know, the spring of 1861, where this movie starts, is only about as far away then as, like, the Korean War is now. Oh, wow. So people are like, you're going to tell a story about our heroes of the South, which— Actually, by the way, this is like a much more sad story, the great train uh, absconsion or whatever the word is, right. because at the end of it, most of the people involved got hung. Doesn't oh. happen here. But um, it's a comedy. About In a post-credit people... scene, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, so this movie basically is about Johnny wanting to impress the love of his life and join the army, but they won't let him join the army because he's just too good of a train engineer. And when uh, the and union- And they will not tell him that. Oh, yeah, they won't tell him that. And when those damn Yankees steal his train, he goes to get it back and gets himself involved in one of the greatest uh, battles of the Civil War. Would you say greatest, maybe, or a battle of the Civil War? I feel like at the end, when he does save the day, they don't really give him any sort of promotion. They just let him enlist. I mean, this movie is really structured like a video game. You go forward on this one train track course. People throw boxes at you, and they throw water <laughs> hoses at you. You're Donkey Kong, I guess, and yeah, you're grabbing everything, moving it out of the way. And then, Buster Keaton is the original <laughs> Mario brother. Yeah, and on the way south, you just have to undo it all again. <laughs> but yeah, this is a movie where he is determined to fight in a war. I mean, kind of like, it's interesting that we're doing this right after we did Platoon. Right. Because that's another movie about a guy who's just desperate to join the war by any means necessary. And we have battles, we have shootouts, we have actual sudden random death. Although instead of blood and screaming and murder, the death in this movie sounds uh, more like this. Every time I hear a drumbeat, that's somebody dying. What makes this film really interesting to talk about in the scope of Buster Keaton's career, who becomes famous making shorts, little reelers that happen in tiny houses where people run around and there's costumes and they're small. They're probably what you were picturing when yeah. you put this film on. The general was his giant swing and it was a miss. And I think that's part of why it's on the list. It was always his favorite, his big thing that nobody appreciated. It kind of ruined his career, which we'll talk about. And I think that's part of the sympathy vote. That's why this film, The General, is on the list above all of his other stuff that 
is also fantastic. Well, it's so interesting. In doing some of the research for it, I think I found a greater appreciation for the film because he was a, a guy who had this kind of free reign. This is his independent movie, and this is where he lost it. This is the end of his kind of freedom to make what he believed in. Were people expecting it to be funnier? Did they not like that it had so much of a story? What What was the issue with this movie that people were reacting so negatively to? I, I don't understand what there is not to like about it in a time of silent film because it's so impressive. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think part of what might be going on with the general is it just wasn't like anything people expected from Buster Keaton. Got it. And that they wanted him to show up and just do something hilarious, like wall-to-wall comedy. And here he is trying a hybrid movie. I mean, this is a war picture. It's an action picture. It's really not that funny minute for minute compared to all of his other films. It's impressive. It's not a comedy as much? Well, I was going to say that, and I, I feel bad even saying this out loud, but there are parts in this movie where, even though it was an hour and 18 minutes, I was kind of bored. And uh, and I can appreciate it. Seeing some of the stunts were definitely impressive. I, I literally said, like, whoa, when the train crashed into the water. And, and the other thing that really got me was when he's on the front of a moving train. And again, you're right. No CGI, no special effects. He's literally on the uh, cow catcher part of a train that is moving, and he is picking up giant pillars, like logs, and he is carrying it, balancing himself, and then picks one of the logs up above his head and throws it on another log to shoot that log up in the air and get it off the track. I mean, that is, again, from a jackass, uh, you know, Johnny Knoxville perspective, incredibly amazing. And he makes it look easy. Also, wait. Yes. That thing is called a cow catcher? Yes. The front of uh, the train is called a cow catcher. I know this because my son is into trains. I mean, we are a train family. He's four years old and I know more about trains than I care to uh, care to know. Wow. Well, I, I hope your son watches this movie. I bet I bet this could be his tempo. Well, you know what? I was actually thinking this, but I found a lot of the times with movies like this, even The Wizard of Oz, because I, I started to play it from the other day, totally bored by it. Paw Patrol is now setting a new like level of entertainment and sound and movement and all these movies are not good. But I guess it was the same way I felt when my dad would show me the Marx Brothers. I grew to love the Marx Brothers, but it was like black and white. You know, what is this? It just didn't feel right. I mean, if I was to put on a Marx Brothers movie now, I wonder. I mean, my kid's still pretty young, but I don't think they'd go for it. Yeah, I mean, you'd think a pie in the face is eternal. But yeah. uh, uh, who even eats that much pie anymore? Is that a, that, maybe I mean, that's a weird thing to say. Uh, look, we're I have in an L.A. Ice kid. ice cream gelato society. I have, a, I have a kid who lives in L.A. He's looking out for his weight. He wants to make sure he's in shape. He <laughs> cannot be just eating pies, uh, wasting but, food. But wait, I love that you have referenced Johnny Knoxville twice now. I know. Because there is such a direct link between them. You know, oh, really? in, in one of the Jackass movies, they actually end with a stunt that Buster Keaton does in a different film, which you've probably seen, oh, yes. where he stands very still and a house falls down around him. Which oh, is a thing. yes, 100%. Everybody's ripped that off. Jackie Chan has ripped that off. Johnny Knoxville, of course, ripped that off. In fact, there are several Simpsons images of a house falling down on somebody. Here is a clip from the episode, I Won't Be Home for Christmas, where Homer finds a gingerbread house. Load-bearing wall. But there is something so spectacular about this type of physical stunt work that Buster Keaton was doing. I mean, it's it's really unreal. And 
in that cow catcher scene, for example, he makes it look so easy. He's picking up logs like they weigh nothing, flipping stuff so easily you almost can't appreciate the effort that he put into it. Oh, I mean, it's amazing that he was not killed in this film because he is doing stunts that are 100% real and they all are exceptionally dangerous. And we talked a little bit to our friend, our stuntman friend uh, during the Ben-Hur episode and this trumps anything in Ben-Hur. I mean, as far as a stunt perspective, I mean, jumping from car to car, using real trains. I was like, when I thought about that, I was like, trains are not, like, there's something fluid about driving a car and doing stunt driving. Stunt training? Like, come on. That, that, like, there's so much room for error there. I mean, they literally are throwing logs into the engine. Of, I mean, they're controlling the speed of the engine by the amount of heat that's in the engine. Like, that, come on, people. That is amazing. I, but I will say with all of that, I found myself, and I, I apologize for doing it, but I'm getting a little a little bored. And maybe I'm like those audiences in 1926. I wanted a little bit more bang for my buck or maybe a little bit of a shorter story. I, I don't know. It, it, well, it, and also when this movie comes out in like 1926, 1927, it starts playing in New York right next door to The Jazz Singer, the first sound oh, wow. movie ever. So this is, this is one of the last giant silent epics that Buster Keaton got to put his name on and audiences were like, hold up, that guy's singing. So all of a sudden the bigger, better deal is happening literally right next door. Yeah, I think that's why Buster Keaton always felt like this film was the one that audiences just didn't appreciate of his. Because you're right, when this film came out, the studios were like, you spent way too much money on this. You did not make your money back. We're going to be watching your budgets now. You never get this free blank check that you have ever again. And he didn't. He had to move studios trying to get some more freedom. When he does that, he goes to MGM. They give him even less freedom. They make him talk. His big complaint about having to do these talking comedies was that because sound was so new, what they would do is they would make the actors repeat their lines in several languages. So he'd have to oh, do that no. scene again in Spanish and again in German phonetically. And he said it was like making the same bad movie three times. Oh, well, you know what I was very impressed with? Uh, again, not being someone who's so familiar with silent film is the level of production behind his film. Like he took over an entire town. Like he kept an entire town as his set for this movie. And to think about that, like I, I think my mind, I always picture it, you know, on a back lot or on a set, very small contained things. And he feels like a big idea guy. Like he didn't want to be kind of caged in a system. And in a weird way, at the end of making something that is universally accepted by everyone. I mean, that's the only time in our history that we'll ever have that silent film. It's accessible for every single person and you get, you get it in whatever culture you're in. Yeah. Especially his silent films and Charlie Chaplin's silent films, because when you made a silent film back in this period, you got a lot of information across with title cards and the yeah. average silent film used probably around 250 title cards, you know, saying things oh, wow. like, she gets the letter from her lover. Right. Dun, dun, dun. But Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin always tried to use the fewest number of title cards, which made them easier to translate, which meant they carried more across cultures without having to worry about language. In fact, here is him talking about it. Ooh. This is him talking about how much he tried to use as few titles as possible, and also saying that when he talked on set in silent movies, even though you couldn't hear him, he was still talking. Subtitles. That's right. Oh, yeah. No, your lips moved. You, you spoke. 
And in the cutting room, you simply run the film through your fingers down to where you just got your mouth open, and on the second syllable, you'd cut. Slap in your subtitle, it's explains what you're talking about, and then when you come back, you pick it up just as your mouth is about to close. You had to communicate to the audience in only one way, through action, through pantomime. That's right. We eliminated subtitles just as fast as we could if we could possibly tell it in action. I remember you once told me something about ten years ago about you and Charlie Chaplin having friendly contests of who could do the feature film with the least amount of subtitles. I think Chaplin won that. He got down one of his pictures, uh, something like 21 titles, and I had 23. Wow. It's interesting that you say that because I was really impressed with how the film is played silently and, and in the sense that they're not trying to cover it up with cards. It, a lot of the times the characters aren't talking. Uh, they, you know, and they only talk very economically, I guess was what I was surprised at, you know, and, and that does help because it does keep you entertained in it. Like you, you're, you're just watching motion and, and, you know, and I think the music behind it is, is amazingly uh, constructed as well. I mean, I think, being a director, you're, you're balancing so many different things. You're, you're doing stories through visual, through sound, and through, you know, this proper placement of the, the minimalist text that you possibly need to get your point across. Yeah, and the music is so interesting because it's not like Buster Keaton had complete control over the music as it would be played in every single theater. Yeah. In fact, I started watching the journal on one website because, you know, it's free right now. Right. It's, well, it's free forever because uh, it was such a flop that the studio didn't bother to renew their patents on it. So now it's in public domain. I started watching it on one site and the music they had in the background was pomp and circumstance. You know, oh, really? Da, 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 da. It was so annoying that I had to switch to a different version to hear some music that I thought fit it better. Wow. I didn't even realize that they could do that. I thought there would just be one track always. My music track seemed pretty good. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was enjoying it the whole way through. Was but it Pink Floyd? It was Pink Floyd. It was odd. I was like, how did it get Pink Floyd for this? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, speaking of which, I do believe that, you know, part of the reason why they were able to use such few cards, or at least uh, he was able to use, use such few cards, is he plays it pretty straight. It's very internal. It's a very internal performance. And I thought that was interesting to see like I think when you think of silent film you think like eyes bugging out of the head mouth agape you know and he definitely is playing emotions you know surprised angry upset but it's played much more contemporary I guess yeah he learned really early on when he was a vaudeville star as a kid that if he laughed or if he gave too much emotion when something funny happened the audience didn't laugh that there was this inverse balance And one of his specialties when he was a little kid, do you know much about his little kid life? No, not at all. It's pretty brutal. His parents were both traveling vaudeville performers. They weren't very good. Okay. Uh, And so when he was born, they were pretty panicked about it. He was born uh, in a tiny town in Kansas. I think he was only there for a night or two, and then they moved on. Oh, wow. But this town does have a museum to Buster Keaton, should you ever be in Kansas, because he was there. (laughs) For two Uh, nights. For two nights only, Buster (laughs) Keaton. And... His parents were so desperate for money that they were really worried that having this little kid would get them fired. So when they would perform on set, they would sometimes give him alcohol so he'd be drunk backstage as a baby and so he wouldn't cry or disturb the show. They would chain him to poles. Oh, my God. And then when he gets older, they put him into the act. He fell down the stairs is his famous story, that he fell down the stairs when he was 18 months old. He 
He later tried to, like, lower it to six months old. But he fell down the stairs. He didn't cry. And everybody applauded him and said, what a buster, which is how oh. he got his nickname. So then his dad. This is bumming me out. Oh, no. Well, it's no, going to no. get worse. It's going to get worse. So his dad sews handles, like suitcase handles, into his costumes. And then he uses them to throw the kid around the set. And that becomes his act. He throws the kid here. He catches the kid over there. And what? Buster trained himself to never show any reaction. His dad would hit him in the face with a broom and he would wait. What are you talking about? This is insane. He would hit him in the head with a broom and he would wait five seconds. He wouldn't react at all. And then he would just say, ouch. And it would bring down the house. <laughs> uh, I mean, look. There will only be this time in America where you could abuse children on stage. That is nuts. Yeah, like the family took Buster Keaton to England, right? Right. And they're throwing him around like usual, knocking him up, tossing him everywhere. And the head of the theater says to his dad, he's adopted, right? And the dad goes, no, 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 he's mine. And the theater guy goes, well, I thought he was adopted and you didn't give a damn what you did to him. (sighs) Wow. Yeah, these early silent performers, they lived a life before movies started. They, we yeah. don't think so much about the vaudeville buildup to film, but before most of these first people were in film, they were on stage really hoofing it every night, learning these acts the hard way. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think there's a part of that um, kind of tried and tested material that comes across and like – for example, we talked a little bit about the Marx Brothers. Like some of their earlier stuff is so much better because they did it on stage a million times and knew where the beats were. And as they got kind of older, they didn't do that anymore. And it was it kind of feels more flat, you know. Um, it's yeah. interesting. Buster Keaton, that's actually sort of how he structured his scripts when he would make a movie. Is he would have a beginning and an end. He would figure that out before he okay. sold the film. But everything in the middle, he would just improvise because he would look around the set and see if people were laughing or not. His big thing was grounding his gags in reality. He was interested in making his comedy kind of interact and respond to the physics of the real world, which I think is a an interesting thing. And it and it takes away some of the cuteness of it. Look, he grew up in a world where he was put in real danger. I saw David Blaine on stage recently. Um, I don't mean to brag, no big deal. And, um, and his whole act is doing these really cool magic tricks. But the, uh, the stunt element of it the, is you are so captivated by it. He could do anything because he's walking around with a needle, a real needle in his arm. You know, the, I think there's – when you can uh, get people on that visceral level, and I feel like – you could put Sasha Baron Cohen in the same world. It's like Bruno or Borat is doing similar stuff. Like, can they get away with it? This is people interacting in the real world, using the real world as the stage. You feel like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And that, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know if he's the originator of that, but it seems to me in the stuff that I've seen of Chaplin, this felt more dangerous to me than the stuff I've seen of Chaplin. Am I right or wrong about that? I mean, Chaplin did some tricky stuff. Like, I always picture this one comedy where he's um, walking back and forth over an open subway grate that magically is always closed when he happens to step on it, but he's not looking down. Okay. And that could have gone wrong at any moment. And you've also got Harold Lloyd, say, grabbing onto the clock, uh, dangling from one arm. I mean, these people were putting their bodies on the line really early. It's fascinating because, yeah, the comedies I love now, the modern comedies I love are very dialogue-driven, da-da-da-da-da-da, like right. when Harry met Sally. But comedy got born from this physical stunt place. Well, you know, I read a quote that said the difference between Chaplin and 
Buster Keaton was poetry and prose, like that uh, Chaplin was poetry and Buster Keaton was prose. And I thought that was an interesting idea, the idea that there's something about Chaplin that feels very choreographed, almost like a dance number, like you're talking about walking on the greats. And there's something about this, it just feels more alive, it feels more... uh, like something bad can happen. I don't know, maybe in my mind, Charlie Chaplin, what I'm thinking of, it feels soundstage. It feels sets. Harold Lloyd on top of that clock, that, that, that's a set too. That's not a clock. That's not a real clock, right? Yeah, he was. Los Angeles, downtown. Let's go do it. Oh my God. Well, all right. Well, then I don't know where I fall on Harold Lloyd. I only know these two. Um, <laughs> well, but uh, even just bringing him up, these three guys always got pit against each other. Chaplin versus Harold Lloyd versus Buster Keaton. You know, it's sort of like a pick your favorite. Who's your Spice Girl kind Who's of Who's your thing. favorite Chris? Chris Pratt, Chris Evans, uh, Chris Pine. I mean, come I on. I am going to go Pine, although Evans is close. I mean, look, they're all, they're all doing it. No, but uh, <laughs> I think, well, whenever you have, you know, people who are very good at their profession, you're going to have favorites. And I think maybe that was a benefit of what made their work so good. It was direct competition. Yeah, although if you look at the AFI list, Chaplin is the clear winner. He's got three movies. Buster Keaton has one. Harold Lloyd doesn't have any. Wow, I didn't realize Harold Lloyd had zero. Yeah, Safety Last is not here. Now, I will say I saw Safety Last in the theater and loved it. I had a very good time, just in case you think that I might be a silent film hater here. Uh, I thought that was a great uh, a great time in the theater. And maybe uh, one of the things about watching these silent films is a communal experience, too. Because it is uh, a different thing to watch a silent film at home. Yeah, you want to hear people with you laughing. Yeah. It's, it's interactive, almost. If there's no sound coming from the screen, you need it coming from the people next to you. 100%. But talking about this Chaplin poet, Keaton prose thing, yeah. I mean, I think that might show up in the way that we've really reacted to them in their careers immediately after. You know, Buster Keaton lost control of his career, especially when we went into the sound era. Meanwhile, Charlie Chaplin is having the clout to say yes, no, and still keep controlling his career. And so he gets hailed as an artist pretty quickly, and Buster Keaton gets more or less forgotten, which is how things like The General wind up in public domain. And then he gets this resurgence, like in the 50s and 60s, where he starts doing talk shows. Actually, wait, let me show you a clip of this talk show, because it's Buster Keaton on a TV show called I've Got a Secret, and he decides that he's going to show up and be the silent guy that they remember. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce a true giant in the theatrical world, Mr. Buster Keaton. <laughs> Such a pleasure to have you with us, really. And I understand that you too are going out in summer stock this summer. Is that true? You're appearing in uh, Merton of the Movies? Are you going to talk in Merton of the movies? In the plays? Do you have a speaking part? I gather you're not going to talk tonight, though. I'm not going to talk tonight. <laughs> well, all right. Do you prefer silent movies to, uh, to uh, talking movies? Do you, would you prefer silent television to talking television? He's just shaking his head. Wow. Thanks, Ahit. Right. Is this all like right. Buster <laughs> Keaton doing like a Zach Alphanakis? Like, did he... Or is the host of the show in on this? Or is he just going out there and fucking with him? <laughs> because he comes out, you know, dressed like the Buster Keaton that we know. And uh, it really is, it's interesting. I mean. He's pretty unnerving. I mean, yeah. at this point, he's old, wizened, his cheekbones are staring at you. He's gaunt. And he is 
I think, terrifying. If he was staring at me that way and not speaking to me, I'd lose my mind. Yeah, it feels like if you didn't know what was going on, you're like, he's unwell and he may have lost his mind. (laughs) Which is maybe some of the rumor. I mean, there is some rumor that he was definitely an alcoholic, which you can't really blame him for when your parents are giving you booze when you're a baby. You'll shut up. Yeah. He has said that after um, his career collapsed, he was in a sanitarium for a while. Also, apparently, Buster Keaton gets really bitter around this period. He was a guy who got really into doing pranks behind the scenes, but they weren't even the nicest pranks. Really? Yeah, like, one time he hosted this banquet, and he had people saw the back legs of the chairs just gently in half, just kind of subtly. So when everybody sat down, they would break underneath them. (laughs) Well, no. I heard another story about him that there's a wedding happening in this town, and he was there, and he put the bride and groom behind a curtain and charged people to come behind the curtain with him and watch them kiss. Wait, that's kind of cute. I would do I that. I know. It's kind of cute, but it also seems weird. Like, it's like it's like a Bill Murray kind of, like, interaction. Like, yeah, but it was cool. Buster <laughs> Keaton came and put us behind a curtain. Well, yeah, and he would do practical jokes even here on the set of The General. Like, he mainly did them a lot to Mary and Mac. When she went swimming once, he took all of her clothes while she was in the water and tied them together in knots. <laughs> This is not cool. It's like, these are not the cool pranks. Yeah, and then one of the pranks is actually in the movie. He didn't warn her. In the scene on the train when they're driving underneath the water tower and they get drenched, he did not tell her that was going to happen. And her quote about it afterwards was, it was a good thing that that was a silent movie, but if it had been talkies, they'd have had to cut it out because I was so mad at them. So I love (laughs) the idea of this silent film just having all these expletives we can't even hear. I love it. Maybe if we were mouth readers. Mouth readers, lip readers. I like mouth readers. If we read mouths. <laughs> and even after this, even when he started to have sort of a comeback among, like, the kitschy kids, we're like, oh, yeah, that guy. I really grew up loving him. You know, he was in, like, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini. He starts being in these wow. random movies. He starts making some money in commercials and stuff. He still, I feel like, wanted the respect he never got, which is why in 1962 he restarts reissuing his old films, starting with The General, because that was his favorite. And is that when this kind of rebirth of – his career begins in 62? I mean, it feels like it because so much of what we're talking about on this podcast, right, is memory. Like, why do we remember the films that we remember? Right. And he, I think, by force of will said, remember the general. Even though I kind of prefer some of his other films. I like The Cameraman. I like um, Sherlock Jr. because I feel like those films play more with the idea of what film is. They're more fantastical. But this was the film that he really killed himself on and he wanted people to appreciate it. And so we agreed. Yeah, I will say I was so impressed just by the scope of this movie. Just tons of horses, tons of people, tons of movement, tracking shots. You are on moving trains, but we keep on getting mired in this question. It seems like a lot of these movies are not the best choice. They are kind of the the greatest encapsulation of a lot of things that are interesting, but they're not the best thing. Probably the best stuff Buster Keaton ever did was in his shorts, but we don't put shorts on top 100 lists. Which is a shame because it was a way of making film at a certain point. You know, I think that on the AFI list, you have to have, you know, cultural impact. It has to have won awards. It has to be a certain length. I think it has to be at least an hour and 10 minutes. Um, And I don't know if that's necessarily fair. I mean, we have these other lists like this BMI list that has like a nine hour movie on it. You know, to have some variety here might serve this list a little bit more. Yeah, because the idea is it would seem shocking to have an AFI Top 100 list without Buster Keaton on it. 
But yeah, which in representation, do you pick the most Buster Keaton or do you pick the outlier like this one, which is his action film? Which is the one that was put into the Library of Congress. And as we know, what gets put into the Library of Congress <laughs> gets put on this list. Can we go to the Library of Congress? I would like to. Let's go and be like, how do you pick your stuff? <laughs> hey, podcast people. We want to give a shout out to Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, the groundbreaking podcast from comedian Chris Gethard, where he talks to an anonymous caller for an hour with one rule. He cannot hang up, which means that he gets into some wild conversations that are completely unpredictable. I mean, recently, he just talked to a woman who's about to live her own orange is the new black-esque journey. The real thing, not the fictional thing. And she can tell him what, she can tell him what it is. He also talks to a young man who came out of the closet on a show. There's really personal, interesting, fascinating, curious stuff about humanity on Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. I cannot praise it enough. So subscribe to Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People now. Support for today's episode of Unspooled comes from our friends at Audible, who offer the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. The planet. So this summer, whether you're hiking, sunbathing, road tripping, enjoying some outdoor downtime, just chilling, or stuck in traffic, let's be honest, because uh, let's be honest, let's just be honest, we're honest here on the show. Audible lets you fill your summer and your time with more stories like what I'm actually balancing my, in my life right now, I'm trying to read Shogun. And Audible also just has Shogun. It is 53 hours of Shogunning. That's like, you know, a week of L.A. traffic. And I have Audible as my friend in that. I'm going to get through Shogun. This is a must. My dad's spirit commands it. So right now, until July 31st, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can get Audible for $4.95 a month for the first three months. And you can get a credit for any audiobook in the store, no matter how long, 53 hours long. Every month. And if you don't like the one you pick, you can exchange it. No hassle. All cool. Plus, your audiobook is yours to keep forever, so there's no pressure to get through all of the history of the Japanese samurais. So go to audible.com slash unspooled, or you can even text the word unspooled to 500-500, and you can get started. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash unspooled, U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D, or text unspooled to 500-500. That's pretty easy to remember. 500 500 and get started on Audible right now. Remember, Amazon Prime members can get Audible for $4.95 a month for the first three months. That's like getting three months for the price of one month. After that, it goes to $14.95 a month. That's still pretty good for tons and tons and tons of entertainment. So join up now before this offer ends on July 31st, 2018. All right, guys. I was not able to be here for this next interview, and it kind of kills me, but Paul sat down with Jeff Tremaine, the director of the Jackass movies, to talk about physical comedy and what it takes to put your body on the line. Let's go. So, Jeff, I was really excited in watching this and wanted to have you here because I, I'm not that familiar with Buster Keaton. Were you, like, super familiar? You know, like, I never watched straight through Buster Keaton movies. Right. But I watched we, – we did a thing on Jackass number two where we did a big musical number. Right. Uh, and we tried to – we did, the like, the – the falling of the yeah. front of the house onto Knoxville. Which is a, a classic, like, Buster Keaton yeah, thing. So yeah, so I, I went into a, a deep dive on, and he's incredible. Like, yeah. he's so athletic. <laughs> and uh, He was, like, literally falling down. And when I watched this movie for the first time, I was like, oh, wow. Like, the sensation I got was the same sensation I got when I saw Jackass for the first time. I was like, whoa, like, you are just on the front of your seat it feels like, oh, at any moment, this person can die. Yeah, like he's he fucks around with trains. Yeah. You know what I mean? And trains are gnarly. They don't they don't stop on time. Like he's he's at the front of the train, like pulling 
big pieces of timber yeah. out in front, and that train is moving, he's and he's fucking around like like to the last second, like gets this, and it's a legitimate big. Yeah. railroad tie that he's pulling. <laughs> he's tossing these things. It's like it's like a, an ESPN like competition that you would see during the day, like an Iron Man competition, like where he's just tossing lumber. If you fuck up by just a fraction, you're dead. You're, you're done. Dead. I read some article here that like like Johnny almost got really hurt in there. Well, we did it wrong, you know. Okay. Like 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 so, uh, yeah. Buster Keaton has this super like intense skill set right that Knoxville doesn't. Knoxville just is brave. Right? Okay, like, so he he will he'll do the stunt. He's not afraid of it. But, like, all Knoxville had to do was just stand still, don't move a little bit. It's, it's very calculated. <laughs> right. This thing's going to fall. The window goes right over him. He got to – I mean, <laughs> like, he gets to strike because it didn't fall exactly on time, so there was a delay. And so he thought – I don't know if he thought that it, it, it didn't – the trigger didn't go. But then he just takes, like, a step. And, uh, oh, and I just got mushed by the fucking thing. And it's, it's probably yeah. 200 pounds, 300 pounds. I don't know. What, yeah, like, just coming crashing just, down. Luckily, he's really flexible. I mean, if that happened to me, you'd hear like three loud pops and I'd be done. <laughs> right. But he crumbled into a little ball and popped right back up. Do you think that like in directing this stuff, what do you think is the most important way to capture it that makes it feel as visceral as it does? Because – when I've seen your stuff from back when I was a kid watching Jackass on TV to being in the theater, I was, I never had that kind of a theater experience. I was like, oh my God. I think part of it, and this is what he does too, yeah. is you got to kind of prove it's real, right? right. So you got to do these long shots that, that, that there's no way, there's no magic in the cut, right? right. So it's just, you're, you're showing him from the setup to the impact. You, you have to see his face, he goes, gets in position, the action happens, and then he's... You know, they show the end result. Right, yeah, yeah. In doing all these stunts, do you ever f- see that fear before something goes off? Like, are you, like, what do you, as a director in that moment, before doing something that you know is potentially dangerous, how do you deal with them? And also, do you see that fear on their faces? There's fear on everybody. Most of, When we're yeah. doing something gnarly, like, yeah. a lot of times it's like, we haven't seen it done before, you know, right. like, and it, so it's, it's scary. Well, because I think there's a part of it where as long as you get it once, you got it, right? Like, you don't, like, you don't, like, there's a lot of the times when you're doing, you know, a dramatic scene, you have to cry. It's like, okay, here's a different angle. Here's a different thing. Yeah. Like, here, if you get it, you can just, like, wipe your hands and walk away, yeah, right? it depends. Like, sometimes you, sometimes you get it and it goes too well. Like, with Jackass, it's kind <laughs> of a, a funny thing. Right. Like, we're not trying to make it. Right, <laughs> yeah. trying to get a calamity. Same with Buster. You know, like, he's not, there's a there's a way to land, but he's he's taking falls. He's not trying to land on his feet. Right? No, yeah, <laughs> it, it is, it is, like, the world is crumbling around. He's just alive afterwards. Yeah. And a lot of people always go, like, oh, do you think he had a death wish? And I feel like that's something that probably was leveled at you guys at a certain point, too. Like, Yeah, right? I think for us, it's always been much more of a group mentality, though, right. where, where I don't know where Buster's getting his... Sure. I don't know if he has a, you know, a guy on the side that he's just trying to... They have a magic together. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, with, well, because he us, directed himself, which is even crazy. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what's motivating him, because our guys and right. this group mentality where it just boils up into this... You, know, you just get caught up in it, and... Uh, and in and, and kind of wanting to make the other guy laugh, there's always been stupid dudes, stupid people out there right. just doing dumb shit. Like, if you if you came from the world of skateboarding, skate videos, you know, there's the skateboarding, and then there's the funny little shit in between. Right. And we just took out all the skateboarding and just it made a whole career <laughs> on just the funny little shit in between skate videos. Right. But, like, for all skateboarders, it was nothing new. Like, Jackass wasn't, like, a new thing. It was just... Oh, that's you know, that's us. <laughs> yeah, that's what well, we do. But like, I think that was so kind of cool because, like, I feel like 
you wouldn't expect this form of comedy to come out of the skateboard world. Like right. it, you would think like, I come from the UCB. We do stuff over there, but we're not doing those kinds of videos. Right. Like, what do you think that but, connection is? Is it because skateboarding a certain thing is, is a one-upmanship and a little bit dangerous? Those sports, all right, I, I'd say like, like freestyle BMX and, right. and skateboarding, those sports attract a certain personality type. That's, it's not a team play. They're more right. like these individuals. They're, those sports have a lot of creativity in them. There's not, it's not you catch the ball and cross that line. Yeah. It's more like what can you do while you're up in the air? So your brain is, is this free. You're being creative. And I think um, there's a lot of really creative skateboarders. There's some like doing – really fun uh, Buster Keaton-like stuff. Yeah. That it's, it's not super gnarly, and it's, it's just really interestingly technical and, and creative as shit. Like, now, in, in watching this, is there anything that jumps out at you that you're like, oh, I, that's impressive to me, or, you know, where does it land for you? I mean, obviously, you spend a lot of time seeing a lot of people do stuff. Does it hold up? Yeah, I think so. Like I got caught up in that. Like I watched yeah. the I watched it last night. I watched okay. the general and I, I was just gonna kind of flip through yeah. and I started watching. I got caught up in the whole story of it. Like it's a weird, simple story. Oddly he's like fighting for the Confederates. For Confederates, <laughs> right. Yeah, he <laughs> uh, what I got caught up in, like there's simple little things that are like 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 he's trying to throw uh, wood up onto the the car on the train that that you keep all the wood to burn in your yeah. wood burning train, and uh, he's got these big boards and he's throwing them up, and it's so coordinated how he's trying to look uncoordinated by throwing these boards up, but he because he keeps missing, but he's the way he gets two up and then he throws the third one over the train, he runs back gets the third one, then he throws that one up and somehow takes down the other two boards. You ever watch the Dude Perfect guys where they, they do oh, these yeah. tricks? You know, these that's what he's doing. These really impossible, but it yeah. looks like an accident. But it's it's actually very coordinated how he's making it look like an accident. Well, you were saying earlier like that you feel like Knoxville is more brave than athletic, but I feel like you have to kind of be both, right? I mean, or 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 do you think do you see a difference? Do you, well, that's Knoxville. Like so, Knoxville okay. has just a huge personality, right? The comedy chops, and then the the balls to just stand there and take whatever you're going to throw at him. He, and he's 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 athletic in that he's strong enough to hold on to shit, but he's not coordinated. He's not a skateboarder. Like like okay. Bam and the other guys, they're they're better at doing yeah the coordinated falls. <laughs> like Knoxville, no, he just, just shoot at Knoxville. Yeah, yeah, he shoots something out and make him stand there. The bull's going to get you. Just stand there and take it. You know, and he falls so funny too because he has yeah. this funny like way of like being stiff with his body and he's so coordinated. Well, he doesn't ever look to the camera like I'm doing something major. It's like you don't know how dangerous it is ever. Right. right. It looks it looks like nothing. It's like oh yeah, I could do that too, but the reality is most of us could not do that and would be eaten alive by like. Train gags. Like, the problem with trains is it doesn't look as gnarly as it is. That's, like, the worst case scenario for a, a jackass stuff. Yeah. Like, you want it to look as bad as it is. I remember um, we shot with this giraffe. Okay. Right? And a giraffe doesn't look like it's running very fast. Right? Like, it, <laughs> yeah. it, a full-speed giraffe looks slow until you see someone being dragged behind it. Right. Like, Holy shit, that thing's hauling. Even though <laughs> its legs are kind of moving slow. It, fuck it. Like, big things don't move like little things. But their energy is so scary and different. Like even you what you're talking about, like the little it looks like a bench. He's sitting on that yeah. little bench that the the, the the arm that makes the wheels go around, and he's sitting on that thing. But I mean, it's just a millimeter away from your shoelace or your hand. Or if you've lost your balance, you're dead. When is there anything uh, that you have like nixed because you've been like, you know what? 
it's a great concept, but we don't <laughs> want to do it? Or is it something that you're just always like, it's all out on the table? I've had to be the guy, the bad guy to Knoxville. Because once Knoxville commits to doing something, right. he's going to do it. And it's, it's weird. It's yeah. like an evil style where, all right, fuck it. I said I'm going to do it. We're here. Let's do it. This was actually in the TV show days. He bought on the internet these shotgun shells that had a little beanbag in them. And we found this stuntman that was willing to um, shoot. Out of, they had to get right. shot out of a shotgun. And um, so he, he wanted to just go stand in front of it and get shot without even testing it. And I'm like, no, I think we should test it. So we brought a watermelon. Okay. Put the watermelon up. <laughs> and the guy shot the watermelon, and it just ripped right through the watermelon. Both sides blew the watermelon in half. Uh, and it also went through the piece of plywood behind the watermelon. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I thought this was supposed to be, they're called less than lethal. Yeah, right. Like, motherfucker, like, it went through a watermelon and a three-quarter inch piece of plywood. I'm like, I don't feel good about this. And he's yeah. like, well, we're here. Let's just, let's just shoot it. And like, fuck it. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like oh no, we're God. not. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll tell you what. I'm taking the two cameramen, and we're leaving. <laughs> if you can find someone to shoot. Yeah. Fuck it, you're on your own. Because he was, he was all set and, like, getting mad at me for making us walk away from this. Right, because you you assessed that this is, yeah. You don't I mean, there's no somebody. way. I don't want to sit there and dig the rice check out of you right now. Man. Like, like <laughs> it, it, it's just too gnarly. Yeah. What do you think? The future of this is because obviously that started, you know, we're back in the, you know, the 20s. Now you guys, you know, you have kind of uh, evolved it over the last year. Like, where do you think it goes in 10, 20 years? I, I think it's just going to find the, the right guy to do, to, to push it in the, or have the weird coordination that you didn't, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a magical thing where it's, it's got to be a personality that you can't not look at, but also has this weird skill set. It's uh, weird because there's all there's a part of me that feels like there is a, a world where it's like the Eric Andres and the and and even like what Odd Future was doing on Adult Swim there for a bit, like you know that idea, like where it's like just trying to do things that no one has done. It's like how can you upend it? I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen does it in ways that are a lot more verbal than physical, and sometimes right. physical too. I always feel like comedy doesn't get. Um, as enough attention as it kind of deserves, right? Like, especially when it comes to Oscars and things like that. Do you feel like this kind of comedy doesn't get, like, I feel like it's even <laughs> a lower rung than the comedy that I'm doing, where I'm like, hey, why isn't that getting acknowledged? Like, and I feel like people love it, and people will pass it, and people will talk about it all day long. But when it comes to, like, awards or, you know, uh, accolades, it, it, it seems like a different thing, right? And do, right. do you notice that a little bit? Yeah, I, like, yeah, there's not there's not awards for this shit. Yeah, <laughs> but, there sh- but there should be, right? Maybe, I don't know, man. Like, well, I'll tell you, I got mad because we got nominated for best makeup and bad grandpa, and nothing could compete with that. Like, absolutely shit nothing. That we didn't win that because we were in uncontrolled lighting, uncontrolled circumstances, and everyone bought that this was an old man in front of them. It's the only makeup that is interacting with real people. Interacting, and think about it, there's the uncontrolled light. We're in broad daylight, we're in the dark, we're, we're in every circumstance, and it worked every fucking time. And it, you know, I should be more humble and say, you know, whatever, uh, Dallas Buyers Club dessert. <laughs> Fuck No, that. it doesn't, because it's like, and you know what, and I think that, but that's, that's the kind of thing, because I think, People just write it off as like, oh, it's simple. And on top of it, on top of like you guys telling a story that was uh, compelling and fun, you are also then doing stunts under that too. Like when him and Spike are on those uh, like those little wheelies or whatever, yeah, yeah. you also then have another layer on top of your body that I feel like is can f- mess up anything too. I that, mean, that's a funny thing about Spike too. You know, people think Spike is this sort of arty farty. 
yeah. nerd, right? Like, yeah. He's coordinated his shit. He's a skateboarder and has this, he's also like a troublemaker. And what do you think brought you to this? Like, I mean, like you were involved in Loiter Squad. You're involved with, you know, uh, Nitro Circus. You're involved with Jackass. You've done bad grab. Your career has definitely existed within working with people that are doing things that no one else does and capturing things that are kind of out of the norm. Like, what do you think your fascination with that is? Yeah, I've just always wanted to make shit, like having yeah. that video camera, being, you know, I was a, a BMXer and a skateboarder yeah. and, and just once Jackass came around or, or even before that, Big Brother yeah. magazine, you know, just having creative freedom to make shit that we like that entertains us and it, that door has just always stayed open. Yeah, I had to learn, like, I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to yeah. <laughs> making TV <laughs> show school. We had, to, it was learning it by but trial if, and error. Yeah, I think that that kind of, though, is the best the best way to come into it because you're not answering to the way that things are supposed to be done. Right. It gets a more artistic, interesting product. And you right. may waste money or go down a path that may be a dead end every now and then, but the other 90% of the time, you've created something that is totally unique and interesting. Yeah. What's next right now? What are you working on that you're excited about? Well, I just shot my first scripted movie. It is the Motley Crue biopic, The Dirt. Oh, yeah. And it is shot. It is in the edit bay right now. Like that, how is that to do, to switch over? Because it's like, it's, it's kind of, I would imagine, a, a drama. I mean, it's a heightened world, and it's like it's super. It's not. It's not a comedy. Yeah, you know, it's it's dramatic. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and it's all scripted. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. You yeah, know? Uh, but it was a really cool experience. Like I've been trying to. I've been waiting, but I'm like, you know what? I like the idea of if I'm going to do something scripted, that to not do something that you'd predict. Well, I'm so excited, and thank you so much for coming here and talking to us. And uh, this is great. Great to talk to you. Hey, everybody. Are you trying to get smarter with your money, but it's really, really hard because you have a ton of debt and you're just paying off that every month and you can't actually make any headway? Well, Lightstream has a solution for you. Lightstream is for people who have a pretty good credit rating and you've been doing everything right, trying to take care of all of your debt. And so what so they do is with no fee, they help you consolidate everything and they give you a 5.89 APR if you're using AutoPay. They give you like an extra discount if you're the type of person who wants to get it all taken care of and make it easy. And you can get your funds the day that you apply. So if you're dog paddling behind this high interest credit card rating and you're just like, come on, and you're doing everything right, go to Lightstream. Go check them out. Go to Lightstream.com. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com. Read around the site. Check them out for yourself. See what you think. And if you're interested, you can actually get an additional interest rate discount by being an unspooled listener. So then you'd go to lightstream.com slash unspooled. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash unspooled. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars, lower your interest rate, and say goodbye to those awful credit cards this summer. So refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Of course, disclaimer, subject credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. All right, so Amy, we've uh, talked a lot about this movie. What's your favorite stunt in it? I think the one that I really love, and it's not even the biggest stunt at all, but I love watching Marion Mack get stuffed into the empty bag of shoes. And then get carried over his shoulder, and he throws her into the train car, and you yeah. have this long suspense as you see people walk up and just throw giant barrels and boxes on her, and just the look on his face as he walks away, letting his girlfriend get crushed. 
I I really laughed hard at that because that giant box, you really feel it like land on her, but she's fine. I think for me, there's so many great sequences. There's the simplicity of him sitting on like the gear of the train wheel and just kind of going up and down as the train slowly pulls out. Which is maybe one of the most dangerous things he did, even though it doesn't look like it. That's the one where he could have gotten killed in a second. Oh yeah, just sucked right underneath. I think the scene that impressed me the most was the cannonball scene because the way they had to shoot it was uh, the train was going around a bend. The front train, which is the train that he was chasing, had to be in front of him at the exact right angle to shoot that cannon and explode right there. And whether or not that was a real cannonball, I don't know. But to capture that in one take again without any special effects, it looked like I was really impressed with that. It's like, wow, he was on such another level that he could blow up a train in one shot. It wasn't a cutaway. It wasn't like light the fuse, cut away to an explosion. It was a fluid tracking shot. There's a lot of tracking shots in this movie uh, where the camera is just moving, catching all the action, where I think the stunts feel more alive simply because they're not being tampered with in yeah, any way. Yeah, he's not faking it. None of the no. stuff is cut so close where you just see his feet or something, some sort of a cheat. And actually, what you're saying is that Buster Keaton isn't just an actor or a comedian. He's an engineer. And I feel like the dynamite was real because one of the stories I read, I was reading some of the Oregon papers from 1926 oh, that wow. were all a buzz about this yeah. movie company coming to town. And they mentioned that his, you know, his dad was there. His dad plays a union general. The dad who beat him up all the time is an enemy. Oh, wow. And one day his dad was driving to set on the train, smoking a cigar, not realizing that right underneath him was an entire box of dynamite. <laughs> Live dynamite <laughs> on set. Maybe it was the final way to get back at his dad. You know, on that big train day, it was also like a national holiday in this town. Like everyone got off to watch the train crash into the river. Like, I feel like he was the best thing that this town had to offer. And when I went back on some websites and looked around, many of the houses are still standing and are tributes to this film. I mean, this town really, uh, really appreciated the general being there. And still to this day, if you go there, you can see a lot of it. Well, yeah, not only was he bringing all of this dynamite to town and all of these trains and that he was just going to explode and let them live there forever. One of the main things that they had to deal with on set was that there were forest fires all the time. Some of them they were starting. Some of them were just starting around them. But they would have to call quit all the time to deal with flames. Wow. You know. <laughs> I mean, and also people were just getting hurt like crazy. Oh, yeah. If you couldn't guess. I mean, people were getting their feet run over. People were getting knocked unconscious. One, I think the assistant director was shot in the face with a blank on accident. <laughs> yes, I read that. Well, clearly the man who was brought up in a world of danger has no problem subjecting other people to danger. Um, you know, this movie came out in the year 1926, and there's a lot of interesting things going on here. This is the year that Houdini died from an appendicitis. Houdini, I, who uh, Buster Keaton knew when he was a baby. Oh, really? And again, someone who was known for his stunts. Um, I, I thought there was something interesting here, though. We talked a little bit about, you know, the life of a vaudeville star and how they kind of, you know, cut their teeth on the stage and then became these stars because they knew where the last were. Uh, another... Uh, what should I say, maybe actor, also came to uh, their full potential this year. And I'm talking about Rin Tin Tin, a dog who was not on stage but found during World War I. He came back to the States and started starring in films, 26 films, and even his own radio show. Uh, and he was making six grand a week. Well, you uh, know what? 
If you don't mind me interjecting with another yeah. dog biography like yes. I did during The Wizard of oh, Oz. Oh, of course. I love your dog biography. <laughs> Susan Orlead, who, who used to have a show here on Earwolf. We love her. Cry yeah. Babies. She wrote the best biography of Rin Tin Tin. Oh, really? It's incredible. I have read that book cover to cover. I cannot recommend her Rin Tin Tin biography enough. You'll learn about all of Rin Tin Tin's a rough childhood growing up in, I think it was Germany where they found him. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just so kind of crazy that we were in a culture where we were just taking people who could do cool things and be like, you're the next big thing. You know, it's a dog, it's a kid, it's whatever, it's a magician. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, 26 is a, a fun year. Like you're talking about the end of the silent era. Yes, that definitely is going on. Q-tips are coming out. Uh, and, Q-tips are coming? Oh yeah, they were called baby gays at that point. What and are, baby gays? Baby gays, How yeah. How do you spell that? Uh, G-A-Y-S, baby gays. What? Okay. Yeah. I- uh, <laughs> I should say they were rebranded as Q-tips in 1926. They were originally just called baby gays. I don't want to live in a world without Q-tips. And, you know, I, I would tell you these other films that were out, but I don't think any of them will really, like, register with you more than saying that, you know, the president was Calvin Coolidge. And, uh, you know, people that were the top stars were people like Josephine Baker and uh, Greta Garbo and Myrna Loy and Mary Pickford. Just to give you a perspective on the time. Now, we said that this movie was received poorly Do you have any uh, examples of that? Well, yeah, the reviews of this movie were not pretty. Right. A lot of people just thought it was underwhelming for a Buster Keaton film. You know, Variety said, uh, The General is far from fussy. Its principal comedy scene is built on that elementary bit, the chase, and you can't continue a fight for almost an hour and expect results. Especially is this so when the action is placed entirely in the hands of a star. It was his story, he directed it, and he acted in it, and the result is a flop. Wow. I can be a little bit more critical with this movie because I've grown up in a world of James Bond films and jackass and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so, of course, my level for things are much, much higher. But 1926, what are you seeing that's better than this? Come on. <laughs> well, and the New York Times was calling out the fact that his character, uh, Johnny Gray, can't decide if he's smart or stupid. And they said that uh, one wonders that the man who has sense enough to defeat his enemies is so utterly brainless when he throws wood on the tender. Because wood is such a huge part of this movie, by the way. They're, like, cannibalizing the trains, which is fascinating. They're cutting apart their own trains to keep the trains going. It's like they're eating their own flesh to keep this train (laughs) rolling around. And I love the gag where where Marion Mack is disposing of wood off the side of the train because it has holes in it, as though it will burn worse if it has a hole in it. I mean, those are the subtle jokes that I think... Uh, I'm impressed with, you know, I, but I have to say, I kind of agree with this movie. I feel like maybe it was too straight to be effective in the silent era. You know, I think you, you know, it's a very hard turn if you're expecting a short and something funny, or maybe it should have just been shorter. Maybe the length of the movie was dictated by the price of it. Like, no, we got to keep them there for an hour. Whereas if it was a little bit tightened, it could work a lot better because I was very impressed by simple things like directing details like when um, the Union soldier burns a hole in the tablecloth as a cigar and you have that great shot of seeing Buster Keaton through the hole and that whole staging of it is just really expertly done. Yeah, that beautiful aperture shot of him looking yeah. through the tablecloth at his girlfriend and realizing that she's there. And then how this movie has fun with the idea that it doesn't have to play the story that naturalistic. In As soon as they leave this house where uh, Annabelle Lee has been captured, they're immediately struck by lightning. That's oh, yeah. just the goofiest jag of lightning. And then 
Two seconds later, there's a bear. And then they're in a bear trap. And I wrote down, like, were bear traps not effective in 1926? Because their hands and legs are in there majorly. And they're like, nah, no, not even blood. Not even the, not even like, oh, my hand hurts. It's like, no, nah, just, nah, bear trap. <laughs> well, this is a bloodless movie. People are getting shot. And oh, yeah, I guess you're right. like, oh, I mean, everybody here gets knocked out with one bullet, one punch to the head. Because I guess... The point is not the gritty, grim realism of a platoon. This is war as like, hey, it's a thing that happened. All right. So, Amy, what do you think? Does this movie belong on the list? I know we've talked a lot about it. We've talked around it. I think, you know, for me, it's definitely been on the lower end of our spectrum of films. I am impressed by it. I am blown away by his dexterity, the way that he moved and directed. It just... Again, as something that entertained me as a full film, I don't know. I'm torn. I mean, I feel very strongly that I would object to a list that has three Charlie Chaplin films and not a single Buster Keaton film. That just feels wrong. That feels morally wrong to me. Right. It seems like a popularity contest. I mean, what you were saying before, it's sort of like he got to write his own narrative because he was successful. If this movie was successful, maybe there would have been three Buster Keaton films. Maybe there wouldn't have been that uh, moment where he appeared on a game show pretty much like in a giant fuck you (laughs) to everyone. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that this film parallels what we've seen a lot so far with like Ben-Hur and Titanic. You make a movie that's this expensive. Right. Everybody at the time freaks out. It's a... either a flop or overpraised, but there's these polarized reactions you get when you spend so much money on something. Yeah, I feel like, you know, he definitely is making something that probably of the time visually is doing more than anyone else is doing, but it didn't connect uh, from an audience perspective. And I think that that has to come into play too, you know, like, and again, I think, you know, this movie did come back into favor, like, Wizard of Oz and Susan Cain, uh, all these movies kind of come back. But this is one that I feel like I was so impressed by him that it makes me want to watch other films because I know that there's better ones out there. Yeah, we're in this interesting dichotomy almost of impressive versus entertaining. Right. And this film is so impressive. And my heart goes out to it because this is the film that 100%. derailed his career. But then after I watched The General on YouTube – I kept watching YouTube, and YouTube was just showing me a random assortment of all of his shorts, and they were amazing, and I was dying. And every single short, I loved a lot more than the general. Although the truth is, this is the AFI list. The number one AFI film on the list is Citizen Kane, and no less than Orson Welles said that the general is, quote, the greatest comedy ever made, the greatest Civil War film ever made, and perhaps the greatest film ever made. And if you don't believe me, listen to this introduction from Orson Welles, Picture this, by the way. He's standing in front of only a red background, smoking a cigar, introing the general when it's playing on TV. Okay, now for the feature. And what a feature it is. The general. It's about the Civil War. In fact, I think it's the Civil War movie. Nothing ever came near it. Not only for beauty, but for curious feeling of authenticity, and yet this is a farce, a farce without Chaplin-esque sentiment, but imbued with a real and very curious sort of dignity. Nobody except Keaton has ever brought us that close to the feel of the Civil War, except maybe uh, Matthew Brady, who was there at the time and who was, of course, the first and maybe the best still cameraman of all time. 
This movie has a kind of Brady quality, and a lot of other qualities besides. It really deserves that tired word, masterpiece. <laughs> I, Do I we dare disagree? I mean, look, he clearly never saw North and South with Patrick Swayze. So, uh, you know, how, who is he to judge the best <laughs> Civil War movie? No, I uh, look, it is impressive. But I think we should be more flexible with the best work. And, and now that we've come up against this at least three times, I don't know why people's best work is not getting on here. Because as a, someone who creates, I would want the thing that is the best to represent, not necessarily the most expensive or whatever. And, and But are you willing to pull a Buster Keaton and let other people decide what's best for your career when you might have a favorite? Well, I mean, clearly he put it out there. But should you be dictating what your best is or should the audience be dictating yeah, it? It's like an arranged marriage. Sometimes I think those make more sense. People have a better idea <laughs> who you should be dating than you do. I think it's time to roll our magical hundred-sided dice and figure out what we're doing next week. You ready? I am very excited. Okay, so it is... Number 72! What is that? What it, Shawshank... Oh, God. Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, here's a call to action for Shawshank Redemption because Shawshank Redemption is 72 here on the AFI list. Famously, the number one film on the IMDb Top 100 list. Uh, that should be our call to action. Why on earth is Shawshank the number one film? Does it deserve it? Does it not deserve it? Call us. Leave us a message. Our number is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And you tell us if Shawshank deserves to be number one when it's number 72. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode of Unspooled, if we taught you anything, or if you disagreed with us so strongly that you were driving in your car and you thought, come on, I just want to get in there and tell Paul or, or Amy, probably me, how wrong she is, <laughs> subscribe to our podcast, Unspooled, That's on right. Apple Podcasts. And rate and review the show. It helps the show and, you know, raises our whatever. I don't know what it raises, but I think it raises something. So help raise something. It raises our mood. Yeah, that's right. It really, really does. Um, thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, and everybody here at Earwolf. We will see you next week. Thank you for joining us. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. 
and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.